Hey everybody, welcome to the Permission to Be podcast. We are beginning part two of our conversation with Corey Gaston. And something special that we got to do with this episode um, as we began to talk about music was insert a couple of uh, the songs that Corey's uh, had the opportunity to work on. And so you'll get the opportunity to hear that as well. Um, and show some support towards Corey Gaston's music. And we are just really excited to share that with you and for the content of the conversation that follows. See you on the other side. Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined today by my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. As a society, we continue to vilify uh, poverty mm. and we continue to bil- vilify uh, anything that's not white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that narrative is continually being spoken and heard more than any other narrative because that is still where the money is, the capital is 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 in that narrative and we have to change that and i hope that this like you were talking about Corey, i hope that this is the beginning of changing that and i also think that we're it's kind of one of those things where we have to hit rock bottom and rebuild it all the way back up white people have to see the other the dirtiness of it all i don't know how else to describe it and by dirtiness i mean our the actions how our country was really formed where this really all began and let's the complicity yes the complicity <laughs> complicitness oh i'm not certain if that is what people will see but i do think something that we were we are all experiencing now is like a sh- we have a we now have a shared memory a shared history right this common thing where i mean nobody's untouched in this i mean two of my favorite jazz musicians died yesterday both of covid-19 and there are athletes and family members and friends that have all been affected, but something that we not yet had, and what, I think what was unique and why I referenced 9-11 is that for those of us that were alive, we had that shared experience. Mm-hmm. And if you remember our country, shortly thereafter, America was the most unified I'd ever seen. it, mm-hmm. And people were just happy to be American. People were just happy to see another smiling face. It didn't matter what, what color your skin was, um, yeah, well, that's a lie because if you were Arab American, your life was hell. Yeah. It's just absolutely 100%. Oh, yeah. But for for me, as a little darker than brown, brown, I, I was given a pass for, for a period. You know, things were good and everybody was kumbaya and everybody was Lee Greenwood, proud to be an American. And it was this really interesting feeling of unity. I was fresh out of the military at that time. And it was unique. Now you see people all vying for everyone without prejudice to stay home. Hey, do your part. Everybody do your part. It, it, it's indiscriminate. And so I think 
what we do not have as a country, as a world, is a shared experience, a hitching post that we can lock into and say, well, remember this. And this is what we did during this time. I don't think we have that otherwise, because culturally, I can't, I don't think I can, I can um, persuade too many people in the majority culture that systems were built to disenfranchise some and to, uh, to benefit others. That's a hard conversation. I've had those conversations and man, they're exhausting. Yeah. But I think when we see each other in the spaces where we're all affected at some level, some different than others, some greater than others, some were um, less than others, but we're all affected. Mm. I mean, everybody's life is being put on hold right now. So mm. I think we have this shared experience, this shared memory that we can um, use to build something better in the future. But I'm not so certain that people will look back and see the things that happened prior that got us there. But I think we can look from this point forward um, for those of us that are alive and hopefully shape a better future. Um, that's kind of where my mind's been the past couple of weeks. Mm. Like shared experience is very important. Mm. Keeping hope alive, keeping hope alive. You have mentioned that two of your favorite jazz musicians recently passed away from COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And you're a musician yourself. I am. Very accomplished at that. Do a little something, something. And we were talking about sort of this shared history. And I wanted to sort of bring music into the conversation. And when you talked about us not necessarily having a shared history, and in my mind, how it, I sort of frame it, I, I do believe in some ways that white people and black people, when we start talking about slavery, we have a shared history, but we don't have a shared narrative mm-hmm. because those histories are enmeshed and intertwined. And I was reading a New York Times article today and one of the reasons I was looking I was thinking about how you're a musician but also I just had a conversation with Austin Channing Brown she was able to kind of satellite in for one of our church services and I got to uh, chat with her and they were talking about in predominantly white church spaces how the expectation is for those who are black to assimilate to corporate worship, corporate music, um, but also this distinction between sort of white music or, or and black music. Um, and in this article, it said that we usually paint this discussion from a lens of musical appropriation. But what I'm sort of seeing and beginning to see is this enmeshment and it comes out it's like art doesn't lie (laughs) art tells the truth once you begin to pull back the meaning of it Mm. how does your art sort of carry you through all of this in the spaces that you occupy that's a deep question it really is so (laughs) (laughs) Tommy's good at Uh, that (laughs) So I've been a musician since I was five. So I'm 41, so 36 years I've been a musician. And when I I grew up in a historically black missionary Baptist church. And the, the church was what you would expect if you are a Southern born brown skinned guy where there's probably two 
to 300 people on a Sunday morning. The majority of them are older, sprinkled with some younger folks in the congregation. And the expression musically is stomps of people in the pews, the pastor and the, the deacons on the on the platform, in the pulpit, in the three to four chairs there, a piano and a choir director. Mm-hmm. And I can see this vividly in my mind. So mm-hmm. the piano player was the primary musician and the songs that were sung were songs that gave hope, songs that spoke to better things in the future. This comes from the idea of liberation theology because that church that I grew up in mm-hmm. was built in 1890. Oh, wow. and I remember our centennial anniversary. Um, I was a teenager in 1990. And the history of the church, the hymnody of the church, even though we did some contemporary gospel stuff and some black gospel stuff, largely the majority of the hymnody of that church came from the history of the church. Being a, an unlearned teenager, when I was 16 and able to drive, uh, I had to get out of that. This was not my, my vibe, not my jam. So I went to a church in Charlotte where I could um, express myself with my musical giftings of playing the trumpet in a space that welcomed it because it was not welcomed in the space that I was in. And it could, well, uh, I'll come back. So I went to this place and I played in an orchestra in the church and made some good friends. And some of my friends from high school attended this church in Charlotte and I was able to play there and and join them. And for the remainder of my life to this point, I have been in churches similar to that. Now at 41, I look back and I appreciate um, the church that I left. And I much appreciate the hymnody of the church because what I did not know as a 16-year-old was the amount of struggle and overcome that was in that hymnody and in that theology. The amount of perseverance that was in that theology and the amount of keep your head up that was in that. I didn't recognize it because I was young and dumb. But now, looking back on it, I can see how there has been, I think you used the word earlier, assimilation uh, or an appropriation, rather, of some of the music stylings. And, of course, now today in 2020, we have um, multicultural, multi-ethnic churches all around. But growing up at that time and Mm -hmm. even now, I believe what was always the norm was the white church. Right. And if you attended an other church, it was just that it was an other church. You didn't see our churches on television. You didn't hear about our churches on popular Christian articles and newspapers and things of that nature. So it was just kind of like the mom and pop versus the large corporations. Right. And so in some way, mm-hmm. if you could uh, find your way into the acceptance at one of those corporations, you have, quote, made it. Mm-hmm. And and so I find myself now, 41 years old, I am the music director of a very large multi-ethnic church in the Charlotte proper region. And what has been the norm in not just our church, but I honestly fully believe that it's not done intentionally. I think it's done because the 
the normalcy of the people that create the, the collective leadership, that's all they've known. Mm-hmm. And so this normative thing that we've created is the base. And then everything else is kind of like the fruit pieces on a salad. It's, it's welcome, mm-hmm. but it's not the main thing. So we're always going to be true to the root. We're always going to be true to who we are. We're always going to be true to this picture that we've painted called evangelicalism. And in our country, since we are a majority society, looks like, quote, the white church. So even if it's multi-ethnic and multicultural, the flavor of such is of the majority. Now, that's a lot of things to say to get back to where I want to go, that my musicianship has always been welcomed in the spaces that I found myself. And I think a lot of that has been because of the anomaly of my skin shade being used in these spaces. So it hmm. almost looks as though it's like we're being intentionally by being diverse because we have a musician who doesn't look like the rest of our, our musicians. I remember several years ago when I first got hired into ministry, I was actually told, I said, well, Corey, it doesn't hurt. Um, you know, like you're very talented, you're very qualified, but man, it does not hurt that you're also African-American. It's like, what a benefit that we can, uh, you know, we can show our community. Right. And I get fully what the pastor was saying. Unintentionally, I just got tokenized unintentionally. I fully believe yeah. that was unintentional. But I do also understand the the commodity of my skin shade and my talent. And so I think what is unique now is that the things that I do within my cultural expressions of musicianship are they're not othered they're embraced but it is given a label if that makes sense so mm. um, and everything isn't jazz <laughs> right everything's not jazz yeah. and everything's not gospel like a, a D flat 9 you know sharp 11 is not a, a black chord it's a it's an altered chord you know it doesn't have any ethnicity on it but i think unfortunately because most people's expressions are limited to the place where they heard them or learned them when they hear something else it is given that that other title Mm. and so i think my space in or my my place in these spaces has been welcomed because of that and again back to the other like if i'm able to affect change for those to come behind me and have conversations with people that have afforded me the opportunity then hopefully it does change the narrative it's moving the needle very slowly but you can see it around the around the country and our in our churches specifically large multi-ethnic multicultural churches very few of them are led by people that look like me Mm. but a lot of them have people that look like me on staff and on stage and i believe that if we're not careful we will assume that we have been inclusive and that we are being diverse yes and truth say that that is not true me being at the table having an equal share in the vote is part of that inclusion me being in leadership not only just for the sake of my skin shade, but also because I'm stupidly qualified to be there yep. is important. And I've done so, so that I could be at the table. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, but truthfully, and this is another myth, and this has nothing to do with the question that Tommy asked me, uh, Tommy and I are actually not the exceptions to the rule. We are the rule. Qualified black people 
is not an anomaly. We are very much the norm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I, I believe the lie too that I was special. And truthfully, I grew up in a home with my parents, both of them. I went to a church where there were black men and women that had been married for years together to the same, to each other. Um, uncles and aunts all around, complete, whole, non-broken families uh, with people that were veterans. All veterans are not only in the majority culture. They do not look like Colonel Sanders only. That is the picture that we have in our, of, our, uh, of people that serve in our country. We don't think about people that look like my grandfather. Uh, we think about people that would look more like your grandfather, Becca. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so truthfully, people that look like me have served all over and are in every walk of life, in every profession that we can, that we can think of, astronauts. I saw um, one of the first black astronauts at space camp this past February. And this fella is accomplished. He was one of the first black people to go to West Point. And truthfully, he is not alone because I also know Colin Powell Mm -hmm. and others like him. So what we have been led to believe is, and this is an entirely different conversation, (laughs) is that people that are intelligent and have brown skin are somehow special. And truthfully, that's the majority of us. Yeah. Mm. It's not Mm. talked about. It's not in our history books. No, and that's part of the the othering. So like we talked about earlier, so growing up, uh, my parents and, and possibly your parents who went to segregated schools, there were schools that were, were called two names. You had school, then you had Negro schools. Mm-hmm. And so my parents went to Negro schools. And so that is a, a sociological term called marked language um, where you make a distinction, a delineation of something that is not part of the norm. So mm-hmm. uh, in America, we consider those that are deemed white to be Americans, and then those of us that have some pigment in our skin to be African-American, right? We understand that the, the country, right? Latin American, Asian American. So, Hispanic so, American, yeah. Asian American. American Indians. Right. So hyphenated and, and anything that has to be given a secondary title is yet again part of that marked language. And so when we have those type of distinctions that that build the framework of our learning uh, when we make space for other things it's like so that's where people have like cognitive dissonance right mm. they it, it, it's hard to settle in because it's not ever been talked about and man it's not normalized in our conversation no it took me 35 years to be cool with being black mm. right 35 years like mm. William Crawford's negotiation yeah. theory yeah. The black identity model. I mean, I'm not going, I'll even like, I used to like get uh-huh. skin lightener for my skin when I was like a teenager. I would go behind my parents back and when well, I had a job and like go to the beauty supply store and they had like skin fader. And I would, like put that on my skin to yeah. look lighter. It's like, like being comfortable in yeah. my skin. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of ashamed to say that it took me that long to be comfortable with who I am. And Little did I know there have been people much smarter than myself that have done studies on this, one of which was uh, William Cross. He wrote the Negrescence Theory, the Black Identity Model, back in 1971. And he talks about these pre-emergent stages and then these emergent stages that, for lack of a better term, is like black people being comfortable being black in in a space that is not native to who they are. You know, mm-hmm. and so it's and so that for every minority that grows up and is surrounded by the majority, there is basically a coming of age 
-hmm. when you become um, comfortable in your otherness. And it took me a long time to where you began to fight back against things that, that make you feel some type of way. So when, when people ask me the questions like, man, why are you so offended all of a sudden? It's like, well, it's not necessarily all of a sudden. It's just now that I really grew a backbone, a spine to say something. So we call this speaking truth to power, right? Yep. To say something to someone mm -hmm. who is in a dominant space that could affect harm for me. Yeah. Like me speaking too candidly yeah. about certain things. Just to be honest, if I spoke too candidly about things about the white evangelical church, I could lose my job. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. very simple. If I spoke uh, too candidly about certain things about the places that have employed me over the years, I could lose favor with people that are my friends because I have voiced uh, disdain about something. And that type of harm mm -hmm. could affect my livelihood. Mm -hmm. And so when you are constantly having to teeter a balance of saying nothing for the sake of security, that is not truly being free. And so it took me 35 years to get to that point to be very comfortable saying things to people that could really potentially harm me and my family. Hmm. And by harm, it's not, not causing me death, not causing me loss of, of liberty, but if I can't provide for my family financially because of the spaces that I've been allowed to work because of the, the favor that I've been given, that does have harm, not just for me, but for the generation behind me of the people in my house. So that is tough. That's a, that's a tough space to live in. And so 35 years, it took me to get there. And it's all just speaking your truth about being white in a U.S. American context, right? That is, that is the risk of speaking your truth as a person of color in this country. listening to Corey Gaston's song Perfect Peace and before that you heard Corey Gaston on trumpet playing How Great Art Thou. I have friends that have lost jobs for doing exactly what I'm doing right now, speaking on a podcast or sharing something uh, that's you know true and personal names withheld to protect them, but uh, a local pastor in Charlotte uh, lost a job for speaking truth. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine who is an, uh, a magazine editor for a, a, a national Christian magazine lost his job for speaking about these things. And so when people ask the question of, well, there's nothing prohibiting black people from doing anything today that I can't do. It's like, well... It's like I know people hate the term white privilege and all that stuff, but there is a huge privilege in ownership. And if we don't own the things, the mediums that we can control our particular narrative, that is a privilege not afforded to someone else. And so but if you start something that is intrinsically your own, well, see, now that's just racist. Why can't I be a part is like, well, 
it's a double-edged sword. So, so, so if I don't capitulate to the status quo within the organization and then I'm fired and then I start my own thing and it's exclusively for people like me to be able to be free, it's somehow in some way reverse racism, which does not exist, but I digress. No, it does not. That is Amen. not a real thing. Amen. I'm just using for the sake of your know, terms that everybody can readily, you know, say, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah. Google. <laughs> Google is your friend, friends. Um, I don't know necessarily how to ask this question, but I'm, I want to typically towards the end of a podcast, we ask the question, what does salvation mean to you? And I kind of want to frame that though through, and and still still that question will still apply. But if I could do a little framing to that question as uh, where you are now, the spaces and places that you occupy now, reflecting back on your experience in the Black Church and how that formed you. I'm reading this book by Barbara Holmes called Joy Unspeakable, and it talks about contemplative practices in the black church and it links sort of these africana traditions all the way from bondage and slavery to they use the words of uh the transatlantic trade represented the death and rebirth of a person the death of a person's humanity and the rebirth of them in into bondage and out of this we have the black church and it's contemplative practices is traditions with the moans and the hush arbors and the call and response and occupying spaces, uh, white evangelical churches in particular, who when they think about salvation or contemplative practices or meditation, it's this individualistic internal expression. And I'll just read Barbara's words directly. He goes, African-American contemplatives turned the inward journey into a communal experience. In this ethnic context, the word contemplation includes but does not require silence or solitude. Instead, contemplative practices can be identified in public prayers, meditative dance, movements, and musical cues that move the entire congregation toward a communal listening and entry into communion with a living God. Spirit possession was sometimes, but always, but not always marked by physical and vocal expressions. Sometimes at the mourner's bench, the prayer shut-ins, or the humming of baptism or communion music. And so this rich tradition in thinking about how this contemplative practice, the combination of art, and even where we find ourselves engaging in anti-racism education, still in this fight to be free, both mentally and physically, uh, whether that's being in bondage by poverty. What would you say salvation means to you in your experience and context of today? That's a hard question. Good gosh, man. (laughs) (laughs) So that's that's an elephant. Or we don't have to, because, you know, if you don't want, yeah, like, we, yeah. I always loved like that, just there's this, this rush to come up with the answer and there's a beauty in the pause, you know, in, in really letting the spirit come in and invite it into that space to, to inform 
what's about to be said. So there's something that the the author may have not said, and if, and if she did, I missed it. That is present in that particular context of the black church, and it was that community of experiences, right? So the the mourners bench, I can I can see that clearly in the church I grew up in on those wood panel walls on the on the right. So I can see it right now. So you had the we had the communion table to, on one side and we had the mourners bench right there. And then the deaconess, the, ne- the the deacons wives would sit right on the first three rows right beside it. And prior to service there would be some of what you just read, right? So there would be prayers, lots of singing, maybe some shouting prior to service started. And lots of, I don't want to call it chants and moans, but that's kind of exactly what it was. Hymn chant. I mean, that's what that's what the, uh, Barbara actually in her book calls really? it moans, and and it is a contemplative art form that rose out that that is an academic term, and in her description of it, it's it's neat to hear the congregation. So this this might be a crude comparison, but. It's so very much what it was. Remember Avatar? Avatar? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Avatar. So remember when they were um, at the tree, Awa, and Sigourney Weaver's um, character was trying to be transformed from one <laughs> body, from her Avatar body, uh, from her body to the Avatar body, and it failed. And they were there all together moving and singing <laughs> and rhythm and humming and chanting. And man, I have had services upon services that reminded me of that scene. And I remember, and this may sound real funny, but James Cameron tapped into something when in that scene that took me directly back to 180 Sims Parkway, Oak Grove Missionary Baptist Church in Harrisburg, North Carolina. And man, I wept a little bit in that scene because it triggered this this memory for me. And it reminded me of, of that. Mm. And not knowing then, of course, what, the moans and the chants and the singing was all about because the, the songs that were the ones that were passed down in that liberation theology um, tradition were songs that we call hymn chants. And so it's very pentatonic, five, six notes at most. And that was the, the way that the songs were sung. And I remember one that I just hummed, there's a better day of coming by and by. And, it's all written. I mean, there's a dozen upon dozens of songs that are written in that same melody. And the words, the words change, but the melody stays the same. And growing up, of course, I thought that was boring because it was not interesting. Right. But I think there's extreme value in that. And what does salvation look like? I think for that particular group of people, salvation looks different than it does for me. And the reason I think that salvation looks different for them Mm. than it does to me, their bodies were free. Well, no, their souls were free that time. Right. So in our salvation experience today, I am not being freed from an actual physical bondage. It is only a spiritual bondage, uh, the bondage of sin, right? As to where the people that came across the transatlantic slave trade who were indentured and enslaved 
their salvation was not a full expression of that freedom. And, you know, that's exactly what soteriologically what that means, right? So salvation is freedom from the law of sin and death, right? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. However, for them, it was just that. It was not a free expression uh, to live and to be and to uh, propagate all of this liberty that I can espouse. So my salvation today is being freed from these unseen forces that bind every person in the chains of slavery to sin. However, they were free, but yet still in bondage by actual physical chains. And so being free of soul means something totally different than being physically free and also being free of soul. So the burden that my forefathers had to bear, I would never know, and I have nothing to really equate it to. But I think them being free was possibly a free freeness in the mind that allowed them to persevere through uh, that mess. And so for me, it's I can break uh, strongholds of generational curses and poverty and I can change cycles and patterns and behavior that were on me because of life patterns of family and history and all that stuff, but I'm not physically in chains. Mm. And so I think salvation looks totally different for me uh, than it did for my great, great, great grandfather. You know, being in bondage and being free in your mind mm. is way different than being enslaved by sin and being physically free. Because mm. I can still be a heathen and roam about totally free. And I don't think that's something that was afforded to them. And so I think in that way, I think salvation looks different for, for lots of people. I believe that the basis of salvation is the same, but I believe the expression of that salvation is very different. Mm. So deep, so good, so good. Thank you guys for asking me mm-hmm. mind the question. <laughs> Thank you. <Mark>. So <laughs> this is... Mm. This has been really good. And if our listeners would like to find a little bit more about where you're going with your journey and your upcoming work, where should they go? So right now, if they uh, check me out on Instagram at CGAS78, C-G-A-S-7-8, they will see 53 pictures of my sweaty face (laughs) as I'm working on this journey of... uh, dropping these lbs congratulations congratulations the date i've lost 41 of them and thank you and after this journey is concluded i will go back to my work of proximity uh on instagram and on facebook it is Corey gaston c-o-r-e-y g-a-s-t-o-n and uh there's a picture of me in the little thumbnail I i don't have it any longer but i had a real big fat goatee that was uh, soft and peppery, black and white. Um, and now I just got a really, really small little scruff there that I'm probably going to shave off, but you can find me there. And so I do a lot of um, work there. And if you're interested 
once you find me, I have a, um, a group that I curate content uh, on Facebook called um, Proximity. And it's a group specifically designed for people that are interested in the work of being proximate one to another in the body of Christ. And so um, it is a closed group because I don't need any trolls uh, trying to yeah. disarm the, the work of people. And so, you know, a couple hundred folks in there that are doing the work and content that we've provided for them and educational resources that we provided for them and things of that nature. And so, um, but yeah, those are the two ways. The um, the book, the devotionette, I call it because it's really small, but it's, it's chock full of cool stuff, is available on Amazon. It's called um, Proximity, awesome. a uh, practical devo to bridge the chasms uh, that pre- you know, present themselves between communities of faith. And so it's on there under my name, Corey Gaston, mm. as well. Corey, thank you so much for awesome. sitting down and chatting with us. I have been so filled and so mm-hmm. educated and just good Lord. I wish you were here and social distancing wasn't a thing so I could just hug you. <laughs> My man. Yeah, right now we're all kind of staying away. I haven't seen actual physical humans outside of my family in but two weeks. Everybody's been on the screen like I see you guys right now. Yeah, thank you guys again for having me. This has been big fun. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. If you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guest in the show notes located at beccaepley.com.